This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 425,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend to you The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin. This is actually a book that I teach for work as a part of my 11th grade course that covers, among other things, modern U.S. history. James Baldwin is, in my opinion, one of the best writers on the history of race in the United States, and The Fire Next Time is one of his best and, I think, most accessible works. If you've never encountered it before, this is a great way to do it. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your copy. Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 337, Let the Games Begin, part 2. When the Olympic Games resumed in 1948, the world was a very different place. The 1948 Olympics were held in London and received the extremely charming nickname of the Austerity Games. After years of war, nobody really had the budget to blow on grand new venues and expensive celebrations, and so the Games made use of existing infrastructure and a minimum of spectacle to the greatest degree possible. Not that they really needed that much hype. It had been 16 years since the last Olympics had been held, as both the 1940 Tokyo Games and the 1944 Games, which had been slated for London, were cancelled due to the Second World War. A chance to bring back pre-war tradition and get back some semblance of normalcy was all the PR the Olympics required. Not that everything was back to normal, mind you. There were already signs the world was changing. Among other things, this Olympic Games were the first time the Games were used as a chance for a political defection. One of the members of the Czech delegation refused to return home for fear of the Soviet-backed dictatorial government. Ongoing political struggles also reared their heads at this game. For example, a threatened boycott by Arab states convinced the IOC to exclude the newly formed State of Israel, which would not debut at the Olympics until 1952. Probably the biggest sign of change in the intervening years, though, was that two previous Olympic powerhouses were nowhere to be seen. Neither Germany nor Japan appeared at the 1948 Olympic Games. Both countries were in substantial financial disarray, not to mention ongoing military occupation by the Allies, and did not have functional Olympic committees to organize a team. In Japan's case, we're still in less of the funding international sporting competition phase and more of the make sure there's enough food in the country phase. So, for the first time since 1912, there were no Japanese athletes at the Olympic Games. Though I should note that, anxious for its first chance to send athletes under its own flag, the government of South Korea actually organized a team, even though South Korea still only had a provisional government under U.S. military occupation. South Korea actually didn't gain formal independence from U.S. military rule 
until the day after the 1948 Olympics ended. That South Korean team included a couple of people who had competed under previous Japanese teams, even though they were ethnic Koreans. Still, it's probably for the best, at least from the IOC's perspective, that Germany and Japan were not present at the 1948 Games. The hope was to use these Olympics as a chance to revive the image of the Games, and Germany and Japan just raised some awkward questions. After all, those last Games held 16 years ago were in Nazi-run Berlin, the ones after that had been slated for Tokyo, and in both cases, the IOC had resisted calls to strip these countries of the Games on the grounds that the Olympics were quote-unquote apolitical. They were about bringing countries together, not rehashing political disagreements. But of course, referring to the distinction between the Nazis, Imperial Japan, and the rest of the world as a mere political disagreement played a bit differently in a world where footage from Nazi death camps was now available and where testimony from both the Chinese and Pacific theaters showed the callous brutality of the Imperial Japanese war machine. So I imagine the IOC leadership felt it was for the best that Japan and Germany were not there to resurrect unfortunate debates about the IOC's culpability in providing a showcase for regimes of, let's call them dubious moral character. But don't worry, that's a question we will come back to. By the time of the 1952 games in Helsinki, things were of course different. Japan was fresh out from under US military rule, the Americans having handed the reins back in April while the Olympics took place at the start of August. Japan was now ruled not by, well, whoever could be said to have been in charge during the imperial period, which sort of depended on who you asked and what you meant by in charge. It was now a democracy, ruled by, well, a lot of the same bureaucrats and politicians who had been around during the pre-war period. As you might recall from some of our discussions of the American occupation of Japan, about two years into the era of American rule, U.S. policy in Japan did a pretty stunning 180. Where early on in the occupation, the Americans had been avid promoters of the Japanese left as a counterweight to the rightists who had previously run the government, increasing Cold War hostilities led to a so-called reverse course policy, empowering members of the conservative old guard against the socialists and communists who might be inclined to take Japan in a more pro-Soviet direction. To be fair, these were not the same people who had run Japan during the war. Most of the old military leadership was some combination of dead, imprisoned, or run out of government. However, many bureaucrats and politicians whose support for the old regime had run somewhere between tacit acceptance and enthusiastic collaboration now found themselves empowered by the same Americans they'd once helped lead a war against. And these politicians largely agreed with the leaders of the IOC. Why dwell on the unfortunate past? What matters now is looking to the future and trying to build something new and better and not worrying about all the war crimes too much. The 1952 Games and the 1956 Games held in Melbourne were thus a chance to showcase the new Japan, not militaristic, not home to long-winded speeches comparing athletes to soldiers prepared to die for their emperor, but a peaceful member of the family of nations, so can we please just stop talking about all the past unpleasantness? This was especially true for one politician with a particularly checkered past, Kishi Nobusuke, who was one of the founding members of the conservative coalition 
that dominated Japan for half a century and which still governs today, the Liberal Democratic Party. Now, we're not going to review Kishi's entire life story here because we've talked it over before. If you're curious, the Summer of Rage episodes include a political biography of his life. Simply put, Kishi was a bureaucrat before the war, one of many who participated in Japan's colonial project in Manchuria and helped manage Japan's exploitation of that region. In Manchuria, Kishi made use of Chinese forced labor to man his projects and actually put his name to a document in 1937, approving the use of, in essence, enslaved Chinese populations to promote industrial growth in Manchuria and North China. For this very justifiable reason, I might add, he was accused of war crimes after the war and imprisoned in Tokyo's Sugamo prison to await trial. But when the first wave of trials did not prove as decisive as the Americans had hoped, future cases were cancelled and Kishi, among many others, was released. So he returned to politics, became a conservative politician, joined the Liberal Party, which was a conservative party, confusingly, from the American perspective, took over the Liberal Party, helped merge it into the Liberal Democratic Party, and then took that party over too. Kishi became Prime Minister in 1956 and made it his mission to, in his eyes, return Japan to the normal family of nations, to convince the world to let go of this image of militaristic Japan and embrace what Japan was now and to please just forget about anyone who might or might not have been running forced labor camps in China back in the old days. For him, Politics was about promoting the image of the new Japan as a peaceful member of the family of nations and moving out from under the shadow of war and defeat. And the thing was, Kishi was remarkably successful in promoting that image. I still think that no single pair of images still quite captures the politics of the first few years of post-war Japan as well as Kishi's mugshot from Sugamo Prison as he awaited trial for his war crimes, with the image of Kishi being received with honors on the floor of the American Congress, or being invited to throw out the first pitch at a New York Yankees game. Kishi was the one who succeeded in getting Japan admitted to the United Nations in 1956, a key step on the road to post-war normalization. He worked hard to rebuild relations with some of the states of the Pacific, particularly Western states like New Zealand, Australia, and of course, the Americans. He was less interested in Asian states like South Korea or mainland China. And it was Kishi, really, who, as leader of the Liberal Democratic Party, became convinced that what Japan needed to do after the dark days of war was to finally do what it had failed to do in 1940 and host the Olympic Games. For Kishi, the Games could serve the kind of purpose they had been intended for in 1940, to showcase Japan to the world. The Japan being showcased would of course be very different, a peaceful democratic member of the family of nations not an empire celebrating its history among a festival of militarism and ultranationalism. For Kishi, the Olympics were a medium to sell his image of the new Japan and sweep away the image of the old one. Now, to be fair, Kishi was not alone in pushing for the Olympic Games to come back to Japan. As early as 1948, as those London Austerity Games were still in session, Japanese politicians had discussed the value of Olympic participation as a diplomatic tool for rebuilding Japan's image, and in May 1949, 
the Diet voted across party lines to express support for athletic competition, particularly the Olympic Games, as a vehicle for promoting peaceful coexistence and a positive diplomatic image for Japan. But these were broad statements. Kishi had a specific goal in mind. He wanted not just to participate or support, but host. By the time he came to power in 1956, the venue for 1960 had already been decided. Rome, actually, which was also trying to showcase a post-war rebirth. So the target year would be 1964. Kishi was very aggressive in pursuing this policy. Perhaps his least subtle strategy was to use his leadership in the governing Liberal Democratic Party to arrange his personal pick for Tokyo's mayoral elections in 1959. Azuma Ryotaro, who just so happened to be the head of Japan's National Olympic Committee, as well as a member of the IOC who was very outspoken in, wouldn't you know it, wanting to see the games come to Tokyo. But this was not Kishi's only play. You see, Olympic sporting associations don't just go into hibernation between games. They organize national competitions to select competitors for their teams, and regional ones to test themselves against other countries and keep their athletes sharp. For Asia, this took the form of the Asian Games, organized by the National Olympic Committees of the various states of Asia, and occurring every four years in between the Games. So if the Olympics were set for 1952, 1956, and 1960, the Asian Games would be in 1954, 1958, and 1962. Tokyo, it just so happened, was slated to host the 1958 Asian Games, and Kishi took this moment to demonstrate to the world that Japan was prepared to host international sporting competitions. Kishi made it his mission to promote the Asian Games, encouraging participant countries to send large delegations to prove Japan could handle them, arranging for Crown Prince Akihito to give a long speech commemorating the Games, and giving several speeches of his own, outlining his view of their importance. He even tapped members of the committee he was assembling to put together Japan's application to host the Olympics to help lead the Asian Games, essentially a dry run for them to prove their chops at handling such an event. One of these was Tsushima Juichi, a member of the upper house of the Diet and director of the government's defense agency. Tsushima was a very visible figure at the Asian Games and gave his own speech on the importance of sport for building cultural understanding. Here's a little bit to give you a sense of the rhetoric. The spirit of the amateur sports, which we never cease to love, is to pursue the common ideal of all human beings, aimed at peace and justice irrespective of race, politics, ideologies, and religions. The Asian Games are the sports festival in Asia and at the same time a festival symbolizing joy and happiness for Asian nations, proud of their common culture and their old history. I ardently hope that the youths of the Asian countries who are going to bear the responsibility on their shoulders in future generations may join in one harmonious Asia through sports and contribute toward the peace and prosperity of the world by their healthy physical strength and their powerful spiritual culture." Unquote. It's a lovely, if somewhat trite, speech and very much in keeping with the kind of image of peaceful coexistence the Kishi cabinet wanted to put forward. Of course, it also somewhat jarringly uses images of Pan-Asian unity that would have been associated with Japanese Pan-Asian propaganda in the 1940s, but 
it's the thought that counts, right? Ultimately, Kishi was successful. In May 1959, the International Olympic Committee held its vote selecting the host city for 1964. Tokyo's application won in the first ballot in a crushing victory. The next closest candidate city, Detroit, Michigan, got less than one-third as many votes, 10 to Japan's 34. The Olympics were going to Tokyo. Of course, Kishi would never get a chance to bask in his triumph. The year after winning the Olympics for Japan, he ended up being forced to resign in disgrace after what was supposed to be another fairly routine political coup turned into, to put it generously, a generationally bad political cluster fudge. What was supposed to be an easy political slam dunk, a renegotiation of the U.S.-Japan alliance on terms that were a little better for Japan, turned into the largest street protests Tokyo had seen in decades, as leftists from around Japan rallied against a feared return to militarism in politics. Kishi was able to get his new treaty through the Diet, but was politically radioactive in the aftermath. Faced with the very real likelihood he would be removed from leadership by his own party via a vote of no confidence, Kishi chose to resign instead. Instead, it was one of Kishi's rivals, Ikeda Hayato, who would emerge from the storm of 1960 as prime minister and who would end up overseeing both the preparation and celebration of the 1964 Olympics. And it just so happened that the message of the Olympics seemed tailor-made to deliver exactly what Ikeda wanted to say about the New Japan as well. Ikeda's signature policy during his time in leadership was a laser-like focus on economics. He's usually best remembered for his income-doubling plan, which is, well, exactly what it sounds like. Ikeda's promise was that he would raise the standard of living across the board by doubling the average household income around Japan in a decade. It turns out he was wrong. National incomes did not double on average in 10 years. They doubled in 7. Beyond this, Ikeda's politics were, I would call them, conciliatory. Where Kishi had been prepared to push back against left-wing protests related to the American alliance or to have the government intervene on the side of big business during labor disputes, Ikeda was all about presenting an image of unity and harmony. He wanted to avoid disruptive protests within Japan by sharing the wealth of the new order as broadly as possible, ensuring that everyone felt they had a stake in the success of the new Japan. And the Olympics were just as good a showcase for Ikeda as they could have been for Kishi. Come see the new Japan. We're a nation of middle-class consumers and homeowners, disarmed, democratic, and committed to being nothing more than good members of the global community. This rhetoric that Japan was all about internationalism and cooperation and neighborliness, and that these were the virtues the Olympics were built on as well, it was repeated so consistently in the four years leading up to the Olympics that it became a sort of national mantra. And this is the thing about the Olympics. The games are built on this fiction of being above politics. They're supposed to be a chance for person-to-person -person diplomacy, for putting a face to abstract national identities, for focusing on that shared human aspect of the love of competition, the emotion it brings out in us. That's why the International Olympic Committee can and has justified giving the Olympics to regimes of let's be generous and say dubious moral character 
After all, it's not really about the host nation, and it's hosted by a city, really, not a nation. It's about that person-to-person side. And I get that. I really do. But at the same time, it's a complete load of nonsense. I'm honestly not convinced that anything transcends politics. If politics is the art of managing human communities, then by definition, anything to do with more than a handful of people is political. But regardless of your position on that, the Olympics certainly do not transcend politics. Particularly since the Berlin Olympics of 1936, which were overtly intended by the Nazis to be a showcase of their new order, the games have been a chance for host nations to engage in, frankly, nationalist propaganda with a global stage. And the 1964 Tokyo Olympics were no different. The difference was that the propaganda message was more palatable to the average viewer than straight-up Nazism, or at least, I sincerely hope that's true. Indeed, to a certain extent, the avowed internationalism of the Olympics makes them easier to politicize because we're all supposed to be able to agree on this idea of international cooperation and harmony that the Olympics are intended to showcase, and to be clear, I like both of those things very much, personally. And so any message that is couched in that Olympic formula Do you like international cooperation? So does the new Japan. That's just something we're inherently more likely to be receptive to. But the new peaceful Japan was not the only message of the Tokyo Olympics. After all, Prime Minister Ikeda and his supporters in the LDP were first and foremost technocratic businessmen and bureaucrats. Ikeda's vision was of a rich, prosperous Japan, and the Olympics could showcase that vision as well. You see, here's the deal. The Olympics require a lot of infrastructure to host. That's true in terms of the obvious stuff, certainly. You need stadiums, stadia, I guess, to host all these different events, and they have to be built to exacting Olympic competitive standards. You need an Olympic village to house your athletes. You need all of these bits of infrastructure to hit the right note between expansive and grand and economical and affordable. For example, the Olympic Village for Tokyo would make use of old U.S. Army infrastructure, repurposing an American housing complex in Tokyo's Yoyogi neighborhood. But that sort of recycling was not good enough for major competitive venues. Olympic-caliber stadiums had to be constructed around Tokyo. Some of these, like the National Stadium in Yoyogi, were already done. The National Stadium was constructed for the 1958 Asian Games, and in a not-very-subtle-gesture-by-its-design-committee, already fit the bill for both several track games and an opening and closing ceremony to Olympic standards. Others, like the extremely stylish and modern Yoyogi National Gymnasium and the more traditional Japan Budokan, to be used for the newly introduced Olympic sport of judo, had to be built from scratch. Each of these venues had to be built using some elaborate and really impressive designs. I'll post some photos in the show notes to give you an idea of what I mean. But again, it's not just the venues that matter. Here's the thing, you also need infrastructure like trains to move competitors and spectators, particularly in a city like Tokyo, where a few of the venues were dozens of kilometers away. For example, most of the water-based sports were down in Yokosuka, substantially to the south of Tokyo. And here, too, was a chance to show off the new Japan. 
Probably the most famous and lasting legacy of this bit of infrastructure construction for the Olympics was the Shinkansen, the high-speed bullet train line from Osaka to Tokyo, which frankly is still probably one of the most impressive feats of engineering in modern history. The Shinkansen was the world's first high-speed train line and ran through some of the most densely populated urban sprawl on Earth. With a few exceptions, the Pacific Coast Corridor between Japan and Osaka is just covered in cities and people and the Shinkansen had to cut through all of it. The initial idea for a high-speed railway down Japan's Pacific Coast was actually not a new one. In fact, initial drafts of the plans dated back to the 30s, when they were supposed to be a model for a railway network across the entire Japanese empire. The government had already even started acquiring land for the project, but as with the 1940 Olympics, the necessities of war pulled too many resources away from it. But now, this high-speed rail line could be revived, and Lord wouldn't reviving and completing that project be something? The symbolic interpretation of the wartime project completed by peaceful post-war Japan... That basically writes itself. And the hell of it was, the Shinkansen bullet trains weren't even actually necessary for the Olympics to run. Most of the venues were in the greater Tokyo metro area, and weren't even serviced by the Shinkansen. But having this technological wonder ready to go for the opening ceremony was just too good of a coup to pass up. The image of Western newspapers marveling over Japan's engineering during their coverage of the Olympics that sustained the project through some pretty dark days. Because the Shinkansen hit repeated cost overruns during its initial construction phase, as well as substantial delays. In fact, it only opened about a week and a half before the opening ceremony, and the lead manager of the project ended up resigning in disgrace because of cost overruns. But it was done, and that's what mattered. Nor was the Shinkansen the only example of this sort of technological coup. The Olympic flame itself completed its last leg of its aerial journey to Japan, sans any trip to Mount Hyuga this time, in a stylish new Japanese short-haul plane called the YS-11. That plane was constructed by the Nihon Aircraft Manufacturing Corporation, an amalgamation of aerospace divisions from companies like Mitsubishi and Sumitomo and a bunch of others, who had been ordered by the government to work together to build a new short-haul airplane, on the assumption that there was a market for this. So once again, Japanese manufacturing could be put front and center in the Olympics, or at least prominently in the background. This particular approach proved unfortunately less than successful compared to the Shinkansen. The YS-11 never really took off, and eventually the NAMC folded in the late 60s. But the symbolic meaning behind a Japanese plane flying the Olympic flame to its destination in Japan, well, that's still something. And that was only the start. The government took every opportunity to showcase Japanese technological prowess at the games, with everything from new Japanese-made timepieces for track and for swimming, designed to cue off the sound of the starting pistol, so there could be no possible delay between the pistol and the start of the clock, to the first uses of color and satellite-based broadcast in Olympic history, the latter part of a joint U.S.-Japan project. The message was clear. The new Japan was a technological wonderland. And then, of course, there were the games themselves. The opening ceremonies were, let's call it again, unsubtle in their messaging about the role of the games 
in symbolizing Japanese rebirth. The opening ceremony was meticulously choreographed, right down to a last-minute scramble to make sure there were enough portable toilets in the venue, when some very meticulous government bureaucrat calculated the current capacities of the national stadium to be insufficient for the size of the crowd. In the lead-up to the start of the games, the government rented out huge numbers of hotels and arranged for eight cruise liners to dock in Tokyo Harbor to act as additional housing if needed, and absolutely covered the city in the flags of the participant nations, each tended to personally by a Japanese Boy Scout assigned to the task. Banners welcoming the foreigners, more than the city had seen since the early days of the U.S. occupation, were everywhere. On a more negative note, the city of Tokyo also swept homeless camps to ensure no foreigner would get the wrong impression of Japan for seeing a homeless person on the streets. To be fair, though, pretty much every Olympic host city does do that. The government also reached out to local Yakuza groups and encouraged them to send their most thuggish-looking members out of the city, again as part of this PR campaign to present the utmost middle-class prosperity to foreign observers. And again, all of this was just to ensure that foreigners would have a smooth trip to the opening ceremony. The ceremony itself was just as direct in its message. The Japan Aerial Self-Defense Forces Demonstration Flying Team, called Blue Impulse, did a skywriting demonstration of the five Olympic rings, which, considering they were doing it without computer-assisted navigation, is pretty impressive. At the same time, the Olympic Flame Relay was completed by Sakai Yoshinori, a 19-year-old student who had been born on August 6, 1949, in Hiroshima, the same day the atomic bomb had fallen which, if you're going for a symbolic gesture of the birth of the new Japan and the death of the old, well, that's about as on the nose as it gets. And to cap it all off, there was an address by the head of state himself. Ikeda Hayato and his fellow civilian leaders had none of the reticence of the old cohort of politicians about demeaning the imperial majesty by wheeling Hirohito out for ceremonial occasions. Indeed, I imagine to the mind of someone like Ikeda Hayato, there was little point to the emperor aside from such gestures. And so, per the standard of the Olympic Games, Hirohito addressed the crowd in his role as head of state, and announced the opening of the Olympics. And again, the image of Hirohito, the former wartime monarch, addressing the crowd in a simple suit and tie instead of his general's uniform, talking about international cooperation and harmony, and watching the rest of the ceremony with a respectful and seemingly deferential gaze, well, once again, if you're looking for the symbolism, there it is. The ceremony and the games were about as well-received in the West as you can imagine. If Ikeda's desire was for the games to be the coming-out party of the New Japan, he got what he wanted. And the Japanese people themselves were just as receptive. 70% of the TV-equipped public tuned in to watch the opening ceremony, which is a truly staggering figure, particularly when you consider that in places where fewer folks own TVs, public viewing stations were set up in schools and government offices. 98% of tickets to the games sold out, compared with under 50% of tickets to the 1960 Rome Olympics. Robert Whiting, writing on his recollection of the experience for the Japan Times, made note of just how much it meant to his Japanese friends and colleagues. Quote, They had hated the idea of foreigners occupying Japan, 
and as a Confucian nation had mixed feelings about the Western-style constitution, which had been imposed on them by the Americans. They were on a collective mission to restore Japan's face in the world, and hosting the Olympics was the big first step. The pride they felt in that achievement was beyond description, unquote. And then, of course, there were the sports themselves. All the forces behind the Tokyo Olympiad, the Japanese government, the Japanese Olympic Committee, and all the sports federations of Japan were committed to winning as many medals as they possibly could. After all, the host nation always has one advantage at the Olympics. It's much cheaper to field large athletic delegations and therefore to be maximally competitive in as many sports as possible. The government and the Japanese Olympic Committee sponsored trainers and physical therapists from all over the world to come to Japan and help train its teams. The government signed off on grants with a healthy boost from national fundraising to fund expanded training programs as well. In addition, the JOC began lobbying the IOC to expand the sports included in the games with the specific intent of adding sports Japan was more likely to pick up medals in. Judo was obviously one. Adding judo to the Olympics had been a dream of Japanese Olympic boosters dating back to Kano Jigoro himself, but it seemed particularly imperative for the 64 games since, you know, one or two people do judo in Japan. The other was women's volleyball, which was not an Olympic sport before 1964, though men's volleyball was. Japan had an excellent national team at this point in its history, and had done very well at the sub-Olympic level. Olympic women's volleyball meant a very good shot at an Olympic gold medal. And this too worked out really well. Japan didn't win the medal race, the United States and Soviet Union came in first and second, thanks to their substantial Cold War-era investments in showing each other up. Throughout pretty much the entirety of the Cold War, both countries would hover between first and third in overall medal count. But Japan did take third with 29 medals total, a bit distant behind 90 for the USSR and 96 for the US, but respectable nonetheless. And yes, Japan did very well in those new sports in particular, that women's volleyball team took gold in a tense nail-biter against the USSR, which roughly 80% of the country's TV viewers turned in to watch, actually beating the numbers for the opening ceremony. And judo, too, did extremely well for Japan. For four categories of matches, lightweight, middleweight, heavyweight, and freestyle, Japanese athletes took a gold in three. The only exception was freestyle, where Dutchman Anton Gesink managed to pick up gold by taking down Japan's Kaminaga Akio, for which Kaminaga, by the way, was absolutely excoriated in the Japanese press. So ultimately, the Olympics were a huge success for Japan, and hey, a happy note to end on, right? Well, sort of. Next week, we'll get into some of the complications, we'll actually talk about the Winter Olympics, and we'll get into Tokyo 2020, but again, that's for next week. For now, that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to new patrons Merrick Malartzik and Bruce Palmer for donating to support the show. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit your ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net, or our Facebook page, facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, 
and I'll see you next time for part three.